welcome to From the Frontline. I'm Andrea Combs, and with me in the studio tonight is my dad, Dr. Peter Hammond. Welcome, Dad. Thank you, Andrea. Uh, today we are discussing confronting new challenges. So, Dad, as Frontline Fellowship looks back on over 40 years in the field, what are some of the lessons that we need to learn as we respond to new challenges ahead of us? The gospel never changes. The Word of God is our sole authority. But techniques, technologies, challenges, threats do change. And uh, my adventure of discipleship began on 3rd of April 1977, and it's continued to accelerate over the last 45 years of missionary service. And during the last 40 years leading Frontline Fellowship, I've traveled to 42 countries, ministered in 38 countries, and been involved in eight wars and lived through three revolutions. And it's there's a lot to learn. But what I have noticed is, first of all, what Karl Marx said, the first battlefield is a rewriting of history. We've seen a lot of Marx's disciples rewriting history, rearranging reality, manipulating the mass media to bombard everyone with no end of deception, distraction, disinformation. I think that's uh, one of the important things that our mission has been doing over the years is recording history from the perspective of the persecuted church. And the book, Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, seeks to be a voice to the persecuted church and letting the people of Mozambique and Rwanda and the Congo and Nigeria and Sudan have a voice. And the victims who've been ignored or just rolled over by the Marxists and jihadists in different cases or the globalists. And so I think it's it's super important for us uh, to understand that we are influenced by five culture-carrying, culture-shaping institutions. And the first is education. Next is entertainment, news media, religious institutions, political institutions. Now, Marxists have identified these five areas for infiltration and subversion. And we can't help but notice that because, well, we've seen schools in many cases have been completely hijacked by Marxists or globalists. And there was a time just before I was born when almost all the schools in all of Africa were mission schools and church schools. There's very few today in comparison. And in many cases, they weren't actually even taken over by the government. They were handed over by denominations who thought, you know, this is quite expensive and complicated. Let's just give our schools, the thousands of schools across Africa, handed over to governments who, of course, changed the curriculum, kicked out the Bible, a whole lot of other things. And uh, now, instead of being positive influences of education, in many cases are areas of indoctrination and not teaching students how to think critically, but teaching what to think, repeat after me, and uh, basically f pushing a certain narrative. So the indoctrination is one of the big problems we find. And whereas in the past, missionaries went out and planted a school to minister to the mind, a clinic to minister to the body, and a church to minister to the spirit, today, churches are mostly expected to work on a spiritual level. And education, well, that's the government's department. And uh, uh, health, well, that's normally wrecked by the government. But we don't have the, the three pillars of missions in most cases, and it's, it's rare to see churches today involved in body, mind, and spirit ministry. But you need to remember the Great Commission is to make disciples, not just decisions and converts, disciples. And that means we need to be training in all areas of life, applying the Lordship of Christ to all areas of life. And I think in many ministries this has been lost. And so the missionaries of the 19th century went out and transformed nations. We've seen this deteriorate down to where it's it's a superficial impact where we don't want to infringe on too much of what is now considered secular. 
And so missions in Africa have gone from being very deep and very impactful uh, when ministries ran the schools, the clinics, the hospitals, and the churches to a situation where now um, an evangelistic crusade is meant to solve the problems, where that's actually only meant to be a starting point. So, yes, I, I think this first battlefield, the rewriting of history, that's also why we've written so many history books over the years, speaking for the persecuted church, like in the killing fields of Mozambique, Holocaust and Rwanda, Faith and Defiance Sudan. I think it's so important that we listen to the persecuted, that we remember them, that we don't forget them, and that we don't allow the Marxists to hijack either our schools or our churches, our theological seminaries, in many cases have been infiltrated. You just think how many seminaries today teach theistic evolution, just for example. Uh, whereas uh, logical creation teaching such as Dr. Philip Stott and Dr. Angela Stott and Ken Ham and the Creation Museum, Ark Encounter, Arts and Genesis, what they're promoting, is really taught in the average Bible college or theological seminary, even in Africa. And so you can see there's so much to be reclaimed, education, entertainment, news media, religious institutions. We have seen these pillars of Christian civilization weakened and undermined by Marxists who following the Gramsci strategy, you know, the termite strategy of rotting from within. Yes, indeed, with the corruption and rewriting of history and education, how do you think that this specifically affects the church? What are the challenges that the church faces today? The church has faced tremendous problems on this because of the cultural corruption. I mean, the, the Marxists have a corrupt and conquer and a confused divide and conquer strategy. And so this has led to tremendous social upheavals and breakdowns of morals, not just in the world, but in the church, because, uh, well, most people in the church have gone through the world's schools and the world's colleges and uh, are influenced by the world's news media, which in many cases is giving more disinformation than real information and distracting people. I mean, how much of the news is given from God's perspective and how much news is given of what God is doing in spite of the evil in the world? But instead what we have is is distractions. And I think it's been well said that when you get any major news focus, look around for the real story that Satan is trying to distract you from. And we need Christian journalists. We need Christian teachers. We need Christian doctors. We need to be involved in all areas of life. And so a good effective mission needs to be looking at all areas of life, applying the Lordship of Christ to all areas of life, because the Lordship of Christ affects everything. And we can't just be fitted into a, a slot where, you know, uh, for an hour or so on Sunday morning, uh, that's that's where the gospel fits the rest of the week's in the hands of the secularist. No, that's not acceptable for us. Yes, so it seems that the news and media has impacted the church long before today. Am I correct? It, it's not just Horribly a new so. thing. Oh, no, However, no. I mean, it's been going on for nearly a century. Right. But how do you think the news has really changed over the last century? So there was a time when the news media uh, related stories in the light of God's word. And so um, storms and lightning were seen as displays of God's power and duels were seen as people fighting for pride and ignoring what our Lord said of don't fight over an insult. And uh, they would see that uh, there was connections. There was often moral uh, stories told. And uh, people who had committed hideous crimes to shown how uh, their moral character had been corrupted. And, and so you, you look at the old news stories and you could see that there was moral equivalence and application to the blessings of obedience, the curse of disobedience. There was consequences. Mm -hmm. But now it's like, um, you know, 
cars crash, uh, people get murdered, wars happen, uh, random events, uh, there's no nothing to see here. And yet, if you look, you can see there are connections. So, for example, um, as somebody who actually reads the uh, police reports uh, at the end of each year, uh, I noticed something quite fascinating, that the vast majority of murders take place on Friday and Saturday nights in South Africa. Most of the murders take place in and around bars and shabines and places where alcohol is served. Most of the people who commit murders are under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Most of the victims are under the influence of alcohol and drugs. Most car accidents happen as a result of influence of drugs and, and alcohol. And in fact, it's not just the drivers who are under the influence, but many of the pedestrians, most of the pedestrians hit by cars and most of the cycle accidents also, they're under the influence of, of alcohol and drugs. And you can carry on with uh, drownings, most drownings, most domestic abuse. So just look at the police annual reports. You can see, actually, there are some connections here and lessons. But uh, the average journalist today, nothing to see here. There's no connection uh, whatsoever between morals and, um, and, and news. And yet the journalists historically saw the connection between biblical principles the violation of biblical principles uh, and and crimes and chaos and uh, uh, the excellent results of good family education, moral Christian discipleship on good character. So they used to be actually more uplifting and more educational, whereas now you bombard with a whole lot of images and facts, which is often quite depressing, but there's no lessons to learn. Mm. Yes, no, that's uh, <clears throat> certainly a very terrifying thought. Would you say that um, there's a specific approach that we may have to rise to this challenge that we face today? Yes, so this is the whole thing. We want to be a Bible-based mission, <laughs> and that's even seen in our badge, you know, the sword, the word in Africa. And we have wanted to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, Africa-faced from the beginning. And our mission grew out of the Cold War in a real sense, because when communism controlled one-third of the world's population, Rhodesia, where I grew up, Southwest Africa, where I served, and South Africa, were in the very front line of the hot part of the Cold War. And we were resisting the southward expansion of Soviet-sponsored communist terrorism. And uh, it became clear during our all-night prayer meetings that the best form of defense is attack. Uh, and so the work of Christian missionaries and Bible smugglers, gospel radio broadcasts, underground churches and training chaplains for the resistance movements like Renamo in Mozambique and Unita in Angola, all of this played a key role in undermining communist states from within. The, the vision came as we were in our prayer meetings, and uh, this, this led to the formation of Frontline in many ways as we were praying away through Operation World and seeing the needs in countries on our borders like Mozambique and Angola. And... I said to our people, you know, the communists are coming to us with hatred and with landmines and bombs and terrorism, hate. Have we ever gone to them with the gospel? I mean, has South Africa sent missionaries to Cuba? I didn't know of any. Have we ever sent missionaries to Russia? Not at that stage. And uh, I didn't even know that we had sent that many missionaries to Angola and Mozambique. And so the, the vision was, well, they're attacking us with terrorism and hatred and Marxism. Why don't we counterattack with the gospel? And undermine them from within, because in fact our Bibles will be uh, making a bigger impact than their landmines, uh, except for good. Uh, ours won't be harming lives; we'll be changing lives. But uh, the whole idea was: well, they are supporting terrorists to attack us. Why don't we go and help the resistance fighters within them? 
train chaplains, give them Bibles, um, uh, teach them how to start Bible setting prayer groups. And so we saw a transformation of the resistance movements. UNITA in Angola, Renama in Mozambique, later the Sudanese People's Liberation Army up SPLA in Sudan. And we saw them throw out their commissars, um, put the chaplains in as a key place and, and get rid of the red stars. And a whole lot of things transformed. I mean, SPLA went through a major transformation it had started as a Marxist group, started out of Ethiopia, working into, into Sudan, uh, back when Mengistu was the dictator of, of Ethiopia. And the SPLA changed in the 90s uh, into a more Christian-orientated army, mm-hmm. very responsive and open to the gospel. And we had the joy of being a key part of that. And so, as we saw, rising resistance <laughs> in every part of the Soviet empire. Communism was defeated, not only on the battlefields, but it was eroded even the heartland. And your grandfather, Bill Bathman, and his friends, brother Andrew, Richard Vorman, they had a key role in that in Eastern Europe. And we had a key role in that in, in Africa, in Mozambique, and in Goland. And as seeing the collapse of the Iron Curtain in 1989, the breakup of the Soviet Union into 15 independent republics, uh, all of this marked a major, major watershed in recent history. And so the thousands of idols of Lenin which were toppled across Eastern Europe and Russia, even as far afield as Addis Ababa. I've got a lovely picture. It's one of my favorites of this uh, statue, this idol of Lenin toppled over in Ethiopia, the people uh, dancing on top of it in our book. And uh, uh, it just showed a major watershed in the defeat of communism. So our mission in the 80s was overwhelmingly focused on helping victims of communism, uh, the persecuted church, those in Mozambique and Angola being targeted for their faith. And the watershed was 1989 to 1991 when the Iron Curtain collapsed, the Berlin Wall collapsed, the Soviet Union collapsed, and the whole Warsaw Pact dissolved. And that marked all the Cuban and Russian troops left Mozambique and Angola. And that was the end of our first decade of ministry, you know, success. But then in the 90s, a whole new threat developed, and that was uh, the rise of Islamic persecution of Christians such as in Sudan. And that necessitated a whole different focus for our mission. It seems that conflict and a lot of historically significant events have taken place since Frontline Fellowship first launched. Which year was this again? Yes, so we launched 1982. In fact, 1982. the very the very month we launched um, was the, when the um, Argentinians invaded the Falklands. And um, it was interesting, I was crossing into the border into Mozambique when we heard about uh, the Argentinians taking the Falklands. And by the time I came back from my first mission to Mozambique, Britain was in full-scale war over the Falklands. I mean, the whole British Armada had uh, uh, travelled by sea over there, and there was air and sea battles and land battles. And it was extraordinary what just happened in that month. And uh, so, you know, I've, I've got these different historic markers mm-hmm. in my mind and thought about also in the, the Behind Enemy Lines book uh, that uh, uh, this was the background. And we were Christians who had a Bible study in the army who were led to go into war-torn areas, conflict areas, restricted access areas, they're often spoken about, in order to help the persecuted church and the people caught up in the conflict. So, yes, in many ways, um, that even explains the name, mm-hmm. Frontline Fellowship, because back in the 80s, the countries arrayed against South Africa were called the Frontline States. Mm-hmm. Mozambique, Angola, Zambia, Zimbabwe were called the Frontline States. Mm-hmm. And because they were in the front line against South Africa. And we had been in the infantry and we'd been up at the border and we saw ourselves as in the front line of missions. Mm. So it was kind of like a double meaning. Um, and uh, 
from there, we developed. But when all the wars ended in Southern Africa, the collapse of the Soviet Union, it, it looked like every war ended in Southern Africa. And that's when suddenly you had the first elections, 1992, first elections in uh, Angola. 1991, first elections in Zambia. And Kenneth Kund was mm. kicked out. And, and friends of ours who we'd met in prison were now the government of, of Zambia and went from being a prohibited immigrant to being a VIP, uh, whisked through without seeing customs or going into Zambia as guests and received by the president and the vice president mm. and the minister of foreign affairs and home affairs and information and all that. And that, that was tremendous. Uh, and we saw the first elections taking place in Mozambique, 94, South Africa, 94, and so on. So you could see that as the Soviet Union was pulled out, as the Cold War was won, uh, it opened the way for political, peaceful solutions throughout the whole of Southern Africa. And that's why our mission was now open to, okay, Lord, where are you leading us to now? Because now any missionaries were <coughs> legal and allowed into Angola, Mozambique. And so we saw our main mission fields now opened up to bigger missions with far better resources who could do mm. a lot more. And so we were looking, okay, where can our mission a small, unique, focused mission be best used. And that's when the Holocaust in Rwanda broke out. And uh, I didn't have the money for a plane ticket, but when I looked at all my frequent flyer miles, I could cash in with SA and get a free ticket to Nairobi and back. And wow. so I then hitchhiked from there and got into Rwanda and was able to distribute hundreds of Bibles to people in the prisons and get the testimonies of the people. And... From there, I hitchhiked into Sudan and took hundreds of Bibles in and saw evidence that there really was persecution church in Sudan and the needs were great. And this is, in fact, the most colossal underreported story ever, as far as I could see, that the largest country in Africa was in the grip of the longest war of the 20th century. The oldest community of Christians in Africa were being targeted by their faith and there was nothing being said about in the Christian media or in the world's media. And we sort of almost stumbled upon it and I got a Macedonian call from Kenneth Baringa who said, you must come to Moraland. And that really was where our mission established its base. And that's the beginning of 27 missions of mine into Sudan. And our mission has done uh, something in the region of 80 or 85 missions by now, if you take all of our teams uh, since 1995 into Sudan. And we've just read hundreds of thousands of Bibles and books there. So uh, our whole focus in the 90s shifted dramatically to meet the Islamic threat and to particularly uh, respond to the challenges in Sudan. Wow. Well, it, there's no doubt that since Frontline Fellowship was born, literally on the battlefield, you have seen countless battles, uh, both figurative and literal, since then over the last 40 years. Now, today we may not be facing an actual physical war, but we're obviously facing conflict now. What would you say is among the most threatening of those challenges right mm. now? Battle for the mind, uh, battle for the family, battle for the heart. Yes, battle for the children and the family in many ways. So I started to recognize some of this coming in 1990 because, in fact, um, as I was going into Romania in 1990 after the fall of the war, and I was saying to our good friends, You've survived persecution. You've survived intimidation. You've survived indoctrination. But now you're going to face something you've never faced before. Temptation from the secularism and the seduction of Western Hollywood media. You've been protected from a lot of things that, that we in the West have been facing for a long time. Well, actually, not us in South Africa, actually. We, 
we'd been protected from it too by a very strong censorship uh, publications control act that protect us from a lot of the, the vile stuff of Hollywood. But uh, I knew this was going to come to Eastern Europe and I warned them in 1990. And in fact, when I went back in 95, I had someone say, you know, you were so right. It was such good warnings. Well, to counter this, in 1990, we launched Biblical Worldview Seminars, uh, which became the Biblical Worldview Summit very soon. And we sought to apply the Lordship of Christ to all areas of life. And this was inspired by what Dr. David Noble was doing up in Colorado Springs. He'd had me as a guest speaker there already. And so I saw the need to organize intensive biblical worldview seminars, which would focus on applying the Lordship of Christ to all areas of life, looking at things like education, economics, crime, punishment, science, evolution, all of these different things. And uh, so as a result... I must have conducted now in the last uh, 30 years over 100 biblical worldview seminars or camps or conferences in the Congo. That actually had our biggest attendance ever. Uh, thousands of people at the one Lubumbashi in Congo, in Malawi, in Namibia, Nigeria, Romania, Sudan, and of course throughout South Africa, Zambia, Zimbabwe. And I've produced over eight different editions of the Biblical Worldview Manual. So I think that was one way of responding to this challenge that the battle for the mind where uh, the world is seeking to corrupt and conquer us, to confuse, divide and conquer us. But we need to have our minds renewed, not removed, renewed. You know, Having our minds renewed, not being conformed to this world. And so taking Romans 12 as our guideline, uh, the Biblical Worldview seminars have been very successful. And also in uh, that was 1990. Well, 1991, I saw the need to launch Africa Christian Action, which was born the same week you were. Um, so uh, as uh, your mom often pointed out, that uh, the same week uh, she had our first baby, uh, we launched Africa Christian Action, uh, which was interesting, but it, it was logical because, in fact, your mom and I had gone to a church meeting just down the road at a congregational church, and we'd seen the first pro-abortion rally that I'd ever heard of in, the, in South Africa. And it was run by Dr. Marge Dyer, who was uh, called Dr. Death by my mother, who was a nurse. And so she knew Dr. Marge Dyer was well known as uh, the abortion advocate. And in fact, someone who did illegal abortions, I was told. And she was running the abortion rights action group. And in the local congregational church, they had a rally promoting abortion. Now, at that moment, your mom was sitting, sitting great with child with you, and we had people literally discussing about uh, not wanting their children. And uh, there was one mother who stood up and said, 21 years ago, I want to have an abortion, but because of this evil apartheid government, I couldn't have any abortion. Had to, uh, I wanted to go to Britain, I couldn't afford to. And then she turns and says, This is my daughter here. And she says, It's not a day that goes by I don't regret that I wasn't able to have an abortion. And her daughter's wow. sitting there nodding, nodding in agreement. And it was like we'd fallen down a rabbit hole and we were at the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. But sure. listening to this, I just saw that with the removal of our last really decent president, last decent Christian president in this country, P.W. Boerter, we had F.W. de Klerk, who in February 1990, just 10 days before you were born, on the 11th of, of February 1990, he gave his what is often called Red Friday speech. Basically, release Mandela, unban the ANC, unban the Southern Communist Party, end state of emergency, this, that, and the other, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and what most people missed is he said that they were going to um, relax the Publications Control Act and uh, the 
legislation governing abortion. Well, you know, a few radar things went off. Then we realized, oh, this is the beginning of, they're trying to get us the same way we see American Western Europe, mm -hmm. legalized abortion, legalized pornography, yeah. and a whole lot of other things. And so with our own child on the way, this was crystallizing in my mind. We need to launch a pro-life, pro-family, moral movement because I see the missionary sending base of South Africa being threatened. South Africa is the main missionary sending base for Africa. Cape Town was the biggest Bible printing city in the world at that time. It's not anymore, uh, but it was at that time. We were producing more Bibles and more languages than anywhere else in the world in Cape Town. And you, I saw all this was threatened. If F.W. de Klerk's plans went ahead with the secularizing, paganizing of the country. And so we launched Africa Christian Action. And uh, for 30 years, ACA has been organizing marches for life, marches uh, to parliament, uh, marches against pornography, uh, demonstrations, Operation Clean Sweep. And we have produced hundreds of thousands, well, probably millions of leaflets by now, if you add the Biblical Issues, Voters' Guides, uh, the pro-life literature, uh, the you know, milestones on life and abortion effects and multiple languages. And we've produced books like Fight for Life, Pro-Life Handbook for Southern Africa, Make a Difference, Christian Action Handbook for Southern Africa, uh, Finding Freedom from the Pornography Plague, um, and a whole lot of others, Biblical mm -hmm. Principles for Africa, Pandemic, How the Pornography Plague Affects You and Your Family, What You Can Do About It, The Pink Inquisition, and uh, so many other of these different um, uh, materials. So we've had thousands of radio programs for Africa Christian Action. I've organized hundreds of demonstrations and marches and, and hundreds more outreaches in the name of ACA. But Africa Christian Action was also one way of responding and we've launched Africa Christian Actions in Zambia and in Namibia because they started to face the same problems we were. And uh, at about the same time, <laughs> we saw education was going to be a problem because immediately the government was starting to get rid of the so-called Christian national education that we used to have. And what was going to replace it? Well, it didn't look very promising. It looked very secular, very pagan. And so we started to promote homeschooling from 1991 already. And we helped theocentric Christian education get going. In fact, um, they were the first, the oldest homeschooling movement in the country, launched by Alison Shortridge. True. And, um, and then we saw that there needed to be more help. And so we also launched Christian Liberty Books, which since 1995 has imported homeschooling books, exported, wholesaled, published, retailed textbooks and curriculums for Christian schools, teachers, uh, home educators. And uh, the, these were just some of how we were still doing a cross-border ministry. We were still doing all the evangelism and we were doing all of the discipleship across the border. But we saw we we're now fighting on the home front as well. Our missionary sending base was being eroded and we needed to, to be relevant to the threats back at home as well. Wow. Well, <clears throat> there's no doubt that there's been a lot to keep you busy over the years. But some may be wondering now, has any of it made a difference? And if so, how do we even know that these campaigns, these rallies, these marches actually make a difference? Well, we know we've made a difference on many levels. For example, there was a major attempt back in 1991 to legalize abortion in Namibia. And a team of ours went up there and uh, I led the team and we we spoke just about throughout the whole country, which isn't too difficult because Namibia is not a very it's geographically big, but there were only about a million people at that time there. And uh, we, through the 
Only two radio stations in the country at the time dominated the airwaves. We made big impacts. We managed to get on TV. And we managed to be so successful that the attempts by the governing party to legalize abortion failed and has continued to fail ever since. Well, in Zambia, our Zambia Christian Action was so successful that we managed to roll back the legislation to, uh, that had legalized abortion to where abortion was banned, where pornography was banned. In fact, they've got stronger pro-life, pro-family legislation in Zambia than we have in South Africa. And Zambia even went as far as declaring itself a Christian country with a constitutional amendment. And uh, we were invited by the heads of uh, cab- cabinet heads, uh, such as Minister of Education, to do biblical worldview seminars and teacher training colleges, uh, to uh, minister on the national TV and, and radio. And uh, so Zambia, we had successes. Now in South Africa, we've been up against a much more determined globalist agenda, which has been very hard to stop. But they tried to declare South Africa a secular state in 1995. In fact, Cyril Ramposa was the chairman of the constitutional uh, uh, convention, which was trying to put this about. And in the legislation, constitutionally being a secular state, no religious gatherings would be allowed in any government school building, any city hall, etc. Well, most churches in South Africa don't have their own buildings. Most churches in South Africa need to gather in classrooms and, and school halls and everything from town halls and so on. And so we mobilized 30,000 people to march parliament to protest this very aspect and uh, they had to back down on the secular state very quickly uh, that that was one of the successes there and we had them try to close down Christian radio stations so we were part of the launch of Radio Tigerberg right back 28 years ago 1995 uh, we were um, on the very first month uh, the first uh, English speaking program on Radio Tigerberg and now it's still Salt and Light still the longest running Christian uh, program in the country. And uh, when the government tried to close us down, this is Thabo Mbeki's attempt in 1999, we mobilized 10,000 people to march to Parliament protest, and they had to back down very fast when they saw the opposition, because what they try to say is, you can't have a community radio station that's explicitly Christian. It's got to represent the whole community, every single language group and so on. Well, we even got our Muslim friends to march against that because they said, no, 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 you're not going to tell us we've got to have people of, you know, Muslim stations not going to have Jewish rabbis on and um, a Christian station shouldn't have to have Muslim imams and Muslim imams shouldn't have, and so on. Mm-hmm. So uh, they failed. But they really, Tarbin Becky was very serious. They He tried in the year 2000 to have a gun-free South Africa legislation that they take away all the firearms only people out of firearms would be the, the government. Uh, and uh, reminding the people that Rwanda was a gun-free zone mm. and gun control precedes genocides. And uh, I marched to parliament. We led a lot of opposition, went in, uh, protested, um, gave submissions to parliament, and we killed that legislation over and over and won in the Supreme Court when uh, they had tried to say that um, uh, our old licenses weren't valid. And, and we launched Goza gun owners South Africa. In fact, Charles van Veik, your uncle and friend, we together launched this uh, Goza, which is today very successful. Gun owners of South Africa mm-hmm. has successfully beaten the government time and again at the constitutional court level um, on all these issues. So, yes, we, we've seen successes. They also tried to close down homeschooling at one point, and uh, the opposition there, we managed to mobilize a lot of opposition, including from friends overseas, to show that homeschooling is viable and it must be recognized and it's 
should not be touched in this country. So the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And we've had to be vigilant and we've had to fight on all these levels, uh, home education, all the way through to pro-life. And uh, to show you how we've succeeded in the pro-life legislation, the government itself has complained about the fact that while abortion is legal, most of the country has no medical personnel willing to perform an abortion. So there's whole districts, there's whole sections, there's even provinces in South Africa where abortion is legal, but they can't find people trained and willing to do it. And there's what they call a stigma against medical personnel taking part in abortion so that while it's legal, you have to look quite hard to find medical people willing to do it. And so that is part of the success. And then we even had um, friends who've made a stand and who lost their job and now through court action have been have to be reinstated because it's been proved that they had the right to counsel their patients that abortion takes an innocent life and, and life begins at conception. And just giving medical facts and mm. the actual warnings of what the negative consequences and risks are for the mother of having an abortion. And uh, they first tried to close down uh, doctors who said that, but um, we've had some victories and, and let's face it, the situation would be a lot worse if there hadn't been groups like Africa Christian Action and our affiliates making a stand for life, for the family, for home education. Well, there's no doubt that this has been a prevalent issue in the past and continues to be today. No doubt will be an issue for the future. So how do you think we can best pray for the mission in the future? Well, there is no doubt that um, <coughs> ministries that are cutting edge come under a lot of attack. And so um, what can the enemy do except to try to slander us, to try to abuse us, try to discredit us? And that's that's a treasure tool of tyrants. They they love character assassination. I had to actually produce a book called Character Assassins, dealing with ecclesiastical tyrants and terrorists. So um, it's spiritual warfare. Professor Martin Luther spoke about that sometimes it felt like the whole world was against him and there was a spiritual war and he's warring against the world, the flesh and the devil and apostates in the church. And uh, uh, I think that when you're involved in cutting edge ministry like this, there's a lot of spiritual warfare. There's a lot of discouragement. There's a lot of negativity. And so we need prayer. We need prayer warriors to stand with us. And of course, there's always a shortage of funds and there's a shortage of people. So mm. uh, we need more people. The harvest is large. The workers are few. And this isn't the kind of work for everybody. I mean, not everyone likes conflict and not everyone likes the kind of risks, although there are a certain type of people out there like myself who, who thrive on adrenaline and risk. And uh, so uh, I was able to recruit more people to our mission in the 80s when we had national service. We had all these soldiers who'd gone through the national service, who'd been up the border and who had gotten addicted to adrenaline and uh, uh, liked the idea of doing something risky and you know, when I'd say to some people, don't take anything at the field that you're not willing to lose. That includes your own life. And you'd get volunteers, um, people who who wanted to do things that all you're offering them is, is risk and danger. But the idea of doing something that made an impact. But today, it seems most people are wanting to be in some kind of bubble of comfort zone. And, mm. uh, you know, where's my mask? And uh, they, they're scared now. And that's sad because... We're not getting the kind of recruits we used to get. And it's like the world has gotten more soft. And But nevertheless, there must be those who like a challenge and who want to make a difference in the world 
And so I think this is one thing that in our last chapter of the book, Behind Enemy Lines, put out the challenge of, you know, um, do you want to change your world? And um, do you want to be part of this mountain marathon relay race and uh, contending for the faith and uh, getting into the areas which are meant to be restricted access where the Bible is not legal or allowed and and making an impact uh, dealing with um, areas where it's dangerous, even illegal to be a Christian. So uh, I think that's that's so important. In fact, that's why we're starting our next Great Commission course the end of this week. The Great Commission course has been going now for 24 years. Every year, training, intensive, boots on the ground, um, everything from... PT in the morning to mountain hikes at night, uh, exams, outreaches. Uh, it, it's it's body, mind, and spirit. And so uh, the next Great Commission course starts the end of this week. And uh, that is an essential selection training program for anyone who wants to be involved in this mission. So for those who are listening right now thinking, that's me. I want to take risks. I want to jump in. Use me. I'll give it my all. What do you think they can do practically? Well, I mean, the very most effective thing any of us can do at any time, anywhere we are, is start a Bible study group. Start a Bible study and prayer fellowship. That's what started our mission. Uh, Starting a Bible study and prayer fellowship in the army uh, was what, and it was, we met every day. And that even during training, which is very intense, it was hard enough to carve out half an hour or so um, in some of the time of training. But we, we met uh, continually, of course, some of us with guard duties and um, uh, patrols. We couldn't always personally be at, but there was a Bible study in the camp every single night for the next two years. And <clears throat> wherever we were, even on the border and across the border and so on. So starting a Bible study prayer fellowship in your church, your neighborhood, your school, your workplace is a great thing to start. And you don't need more than two people to start it with, and it'll grow. The Lord says we're two or three are gathered, so that's a good start. And get in touch with us. Um, visit our website, frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org, or email mission at frontline.org.za. You can find an application form on the frontlinemissionsa.org website under the mission about us. And uh, you can come to some meetings if you're in the area. Uh, but if you visit our website, you'll see some audios, videos, PowerPoints, articles, and learn more about these things. Get on the mailing list. And start to read missionary biographies or, or watch some of our videos, uh, listen to some of the audios on examples of excellence on the David Livingstons and the William Careys and the Hudson mm-hmm. Taylors and C.T. Studs. And I think when we look at the examples of Mary Sless and others, we will be inspired. And I think that's what we need, examples of excellence. So um, what can one do? Read missionary biographies. Uh, get on missionary mailing lists. Go to missionary meetings. Uh, get to a missionary training program. If you are far from where we are in Cape Town, you can't get to our Great Commission course, look around. Is there an evangelism explosion training program? Is there a way of the master training program? Can you get a first aid course? I mean, all these things are useful. And uh, Muslim evangelism, there's so many different programs that may be available to you or on online, but the best is if you can be in person. So get training, all the training and experience you can. None of that will ever be wasted missions. And for those who are interested in the Great Commission course, how can they reach out? Yes, so uh, it starts on Friday the 24th of July, this June. Friday. Uh, June. June, 24th of June. 24th of June, that's right, this this uh, a week. Uh, and 
you just have to write to mission at frontline.org.za or go on the frontline mission sa.org website, look under events, you'll see the poster, you can see some videos, you can see some uh, photo reviews and um, reports on previous ones and what others have said and uh, get a bit of an idea of, of what you're committing yourself to. So it's not too late if somebody's able to reach Cape Town by a Friday afternoon. Uh, great commission course and it's three weeks intensive mission at frontline.org.za or visit www.frontlinemissionsa.org. Well, thank you, Dad. This has been a very enlightening conversation, and I know there's lots more we could discuss, but for now, we need to wrap up. So thank you so much for all this information, for sharing some of this information from your book, Frontline, Behind Enemy Lines for Christ. You can find it at our CLB bookshop. And... Also, ebook and print on demand these days to make it easier where everyone is. Yes, if you're not able to stop into our shop, you can always find it online. So, for tonight, this is From the Frontline Confronting New Challenges. I'm Andrea Combs, and with me tonight has been Dr. Peter Hammond, my dad. Thank you, Dad. God bless. Good night. Good night.